Hey guys, this is Paris Hilton. Trapped in Treatment is back, and this season we're taking on WASP, the worldwide association of specialty programs and schools. They held us in dog cages. They starved us. They beat us. It was trying to brand us. So we were going to become the McDonald's of kid treatment. Join my host as they unravel the story of the largest and most shocking organization in the history of the troubled teen industry. Listen to season two of Trapped in Treatment on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And so are we. I'm Tori Deal. And I'm Anissa Ferreira. The wait is over, guys. All Stars 4 is finally here. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. And we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. Listen to MTV's official challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. School of Humans. You want to join me here? Won't you be seated, please, ladies and gentlemen? Ladies and gentlemen, I would like to summarize for you the meeting that I have just had with the bipartisan leaders, which began at 8 o'clock and was completed two hours later. I began the meeting by making this statement, which I think needs to be made to the nation. America's public enemy number one in the United States is drug abuse. In order to fight and defeat this enemy, it is necessary to wage a new all-out offensive. Depending on your age or interest in history, that voice and speech may sound familiar to you. This is a press conference with President Richard Nixon, also known as Tricky Dicky. Nixon was elected president in 1968, and in June of 71, Nixon declares public enemy number one, drug abuse. Drugs and the people who distribute them are the most dangerous enemies to the public. The war on drugs has begun. Now, drugs are put into categories based on how dangerous they are thought to be. LSD and pot, the foundations of the psychedelic revolution of the 1960s, are considered the most dangerous, Schedule 1. So Nixon increases federal funding for drug control agencies and proposes super strict measures like mandatory prison sentencing for drug crimes. Nixon also creates the DEA, the Drug Enforcement Administration, in 1973. And in the middle of it all is my dad, building up his smuggling business in Marin County, California. This is Disorganized Crime. I'm your host, Rainbow Valentine. It's the summer of 1973, and we're living in Mill Valley. So you're nestled in the redwoods. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I mean, I'm gonna, yeah. Just a hot producer tip. When you blow your nose, put some space between the storytelling and the nose blowing so I can... So cut it out. Get it out. <laughs> I didn't even think about it. <laughs> That's why I'm here. Ah, Dad. One day we'll figure out how to record perfectly. So, in 1971, when Nixon declares the war on drug dealers and drug abuse, my dad has been living with my mom and her small daughter, Vertica, for a while, taking on the role of father. 
and he needs to start providing for his new family. Anyway, I, I needed to make money. I wanted to make money. And so uh, I started doing um, smaller time deals, 10 pounds of this or 20 pounds of that or whatever. And so you're doing it quite small time then. Yeah, small Selling time. Selling a ten. satchel here. A satchel. Yeah, right. A, you Here's know, me. a box full of 10 pounds of this. or. And you'd sell it in ounces maybe? No. Never, I, I didn't do that, I, but I would sell at least a pound at a time. So you were still sort of larger. You were never small. Right. He goes over to a dealer's house who is the boyfriend of one of my mom's North Beach belly dancer friends from the early 60s. Now, this guy sells pot, acid, coke. He's a reasonable-sized dealer. My dad's at his house, and he and a bunch of other smuggler-type guys and music guys are playing cards when... And there's a knock on the door, and all of a sudden, all these cops come busting in. So they arrest me along with everybody else. Now my dad has a gram of coke in the pocket of his Sergeant Pepper-esque jacket, which was a gift from the film producers of Alice's Restaurant, Arlo Guthrie's 1969 cult classic that my dad was an extra in. Luckily, the coat is hanging on the rack, so when it's seized by the cops, My dad is literally not in possession of any drugs. Dad sacrifices his precious coat in exchange for freedom. And to this day, he still misses it. And I always look for it in the San Francisco thrift stores. My dad and the rest of the gang are hauled down to the jailhouse. But the cops let him go with a warning that he'll get a summons, since he didn't have any drugs directly on him. He was just hanging out with a drug dealer. And luckily, Dad, a naive former filmmaker and candle maker from New York, was in a relationship with one of the most well-connected people in San Francisco, my mom. My mom was a quiet, beautiful powerhouse in the inner circle of the San Francisco music scene. At this point, she's a jeweler for San Francisco rock stars. She knew everyone in the San Francisco 60s scene, from the rock stars to the smugglers to the lawyers. Because all she knew was huge-time lawyers. She didn't know any small-time No, no, she didn't. <laughs> right. She knew all these, guy, uh, these guys who, who <laughs> represented, you know, smugglers busted for 5,000 pounds of pot or whatever uh-huh. it was or this or that. <laughs> now, even though he got off, this arrest taught my dad an important lesson. If he was going to be a smuggler, he had to start taking it much more seriously and become a true professional. You know, and now in talking about it, I could say, okay, you've been, you've given up your child stuff. I was conscious enough to to learn to be aware and cautious about parts of things. Getting busted is a smuggler's worst nightmare. And in the early 70s, it becomes a much more common experience because Nixon has declared drugs public enemy number one. Remember, just a few years ago, LSD was perfectly legal. But now, busting drugs and smugglers is an American priority. They are the enemy. In order to defeat this enemy, which is causing such great concern, and correctly so to so many American families, money will be provided to the extent that it is necessary and to the extent that it will be useful. The criminalization of pot has a very long and very deliberate history. It started in the early 1930s, at the end of alcohol prohibition, and it leads to today, when pot is categorized as a Schedule I drug. Schedule I drugs are substances, chemicals, and drugs that are defined as drugs with no currently accepted medical use and a high potential for abuse. Incredibly, cocaine and methamphetamine, also known as crystal meth, are Schedule Two. One of the leading experts on the history of pot criminalization is my dad's friend, Bill Panzer. Bill Panzer has practiced law in California for over 25 years and has been my dad's go-to pot attorney since his longtime attorney, civil rights activist Bernie Siegel, passed away. Cannabis has been used, you know, in, for 5,000 years at least, medicinally. And in this country, what, you, what happened was, you know, we, we had alcohol prohibition in the 1920s. And when that got repealed, there was a guy named Harry Anslinger who had been working on alcohol prohibition for the federal government, helping to enforce alcohol prohibition. And when that was repealed, he was appointed head of the Bureau of Narcotics, which is the forerunner of today's DEA. 
Bureau of Narcotics as a small little you know federal agency. Didn't have much of a budget. Didn't have much power. And he, you know, basically wanted to have a job for himself. So he decided that since alcohol prohibition had been repealed, he was going to go after cannabis. When alcohol is re-legalized, this guy, Harry Anslinger, the former prohibition enforcer, was probably concerned about his job security, and he purportedly starts spreading fictional stories about pot, allegedly with the help of William Randolph Hearst, the newspaper baron and purveyor of yellow journalism which is journalism based upon sensationalism and crude exaggeration. Now, according to many historians, billionaire Hearst was on board to help spread lies about pot and all things pot-related because Hearst had invested heavily in the timber industry in order to make his newspapers. And hemp fiber was proving to be more durable and a cheaper way to make paper than timber. Not cool for Hearst's timber investments. So he and his newspapers allegedly become instrumental in spreading graphic, histrionic murder-rape stories about cannabis. These high school boys and girls are having a hop at the local soda fountain. Innocently, they dance. Innocent of a new and deadly menace lurking behind closed doors. Marijuana, the burning weed with its roots in hell. Now, the most famous piece of anti-weed propaganda is Reefer Madness, which is actually quite amusing. The 1936 film is a mega-melodrama about pot-smoking high schoolers whose theatrical descent into pot-smoking addiction includes hit-and-run, rape, murder, suicide, hallucinations, and total madness. Smoking the soul-destroying reefer, they find a moment's pleasure, but at a terrible price. Debauchery, violence... Murder. Suicide. With help from the nation's newspaper, Billionaire Baron, all Harry Anslinger has to do is convince states to pass anti-cannabis laws. Because at the time, the feds still don't have the power to do that. So in the 1930s, Harry embarks on a ruthless anti-marijuana PR campaign, starting in the Southwest. At that time, cannabis was, was usually known as hemp or India hemp or cannabis. And he started in the Southwest where there were prejudice against the Mexican migrant farm workers who called it marijuana. He, with the help of William Randolph Hearst, who made up these stories about like Mexican farm workers that would smoke the marijuana and then rape the farmer's daughter and chop up the farmer and his family with a hatchet, they started making up these stories and uh, putting them in the uh, local papers to try and drum up you know, anti-Mexican discriminatory kind of attitudes and get behind making marijuana illegal. I have some friends who insist on calling pot cannabis. They never use the word marijuana. And when Bill told me about Harry's very intentional smear campaign, I understood why. Marijuana is a word specifically chosen to spread and incite racism. Now, while they couldn't make cannabis illegal, Harry Anslinger and his growing team of cannabis prohibition enthusiasts found ways to make it impossible for people to legally possess it. 1937, they came up with this great idea that although we can't make marijuana illegal, we can set up a tax and require Mm. people to have tax stamps and then just not print any tax stamps. That was the first attempt to make it federally illegal. And that stood until, I believe, it was 1968. In 1968, Tim Leary got busted driving into the United States in his Volkswagen with his family from Mexico. They had a little bit of weed on them. Ah, this is the same Timothy Leary, former Harvard professor, drug activist, Millbrook-affiliated LSD pioneer, who we talked about in the last episode. Okay, so Leary gets arrested and takes his case to the Supreme Court, stating that the 1937 Marijuana Tax Act is unconstitutional. Leary challenged the Marijuana Tax Act and said it requires you to incriminate yourself, requires me to self-declare that I am growing or possessing cannabis. And that would violate the Fifth Amendment. And the Supreme Court agreed and knocked out the Tax Act of 1937. And in response to that, Congress passed the Controlled Substances Act. 
President Nixon signed the Controlled Substances Act, CSA, into law in 1970, calling for the regulation of certain drugs and substances. Now, the CSA outlines five schedules to classify drugs based on their medical application and potential for abuse. Schedule one drugs are considered the most dangerous as they purportedly pose a very high risk for addiction with little evidence of medical benefits. They also come with the longest prison sentence. Schedule one was supposed to be a temporary placeholder for cannabis. And even a Nixon-appointed committee advised that cannabis should not be a Schedule One. They didn't know what to do with cannabis, so initially they put it in Schedule One uh, with the uh, agreement that they were going to appoint a committee to research cannabis and report back to Congress as to where it really should be scheduled. That committee, uh, appointed by Nixon, um, was headed by Schaefer. Now that's Raymond Schaefer, a Republican who had served in the Senate and was the former governor of Pennsylvania. And the Schaefer Commission took testimony, looked at the science on it and everything, and they came out with a report that it should not be in Schedule 1, that the most dangerous thing about cannabis was getting arrested for it. This was surprising because nobody expected that result because this was a conservative committee that was basically handpicked to come back and say that it's the evil weed. The report Schaefer presented to Congress was called Marijuana, a Signal of Misunderstanding. And in it, he calls for the decriminalization of marijuana possession. It even favored totally ending marijuana prohibition. But then the White House just ignores it, suppresses the report, and pretends like it never happened. Somewhere I think I heard they only printed up 400 copies of it, the minimal allowed, and that was it. Why was Nixon so anti-getting this information out? Like, what was at stake for him? I mean, Nixon hated hippies and black people oh. and Jews. And he oh, felt he that it was hippies oh. and black people and Jews <laughs> who smoked marijuana. Real God-fearing right. Americans drank alcohol. So Harry Anslinger, the marijuana prohibitionist, got his way. Pot and pot smugglers like my dad were officially public enemy number one. I'm Rainbow Valentine, and you're listening to Disorganized Crime. We'll be right back. Hey guys, this is Paris Hilton. Trapped in Treatment is back, and this season we're taking on Wasp. They held us in dog cages. They starved us. They beat us. They burned us and subject us to really horrible, uh, cruel and unusual punishment. After my personal experience at Provo Canyon School, I was shocked to learn that a man named Robert Litchfield, a man who got his start at the school that I went to, would go on to create a multi-million dollar empire. He was trying to brand us. So we were going to become the McDonald's in treatment. The Worldwide Association of Specialty Programs and Schools. They prey on, you know, a parent's really natural and beautiful love for their children in a really, really, unfortunately, effective way. At this time in my life now, if someone presented this program to me, and not just because I've already experienced it, Sham, scam, beware. Listen to season two of Trapped in Treatment on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes. That it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, 
the Apollo Jim murders, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halper. Just a shame, you know, that they took him from us. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, knocking on doors, uncovering new evidence, including the DNA of a potential killer. Uh, my name is Danny Smith. I'm a detective uh, with Miramar Police Department. This is Scott Weinberger. We're actually reopening an old case, and your name came up. Untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one murder, but almost a dozen. I thought they were going to kill me, so I kept my mouth shut and I didn't say anything. All these years, I didn't say anything. Listen to Cold-Blooded, the Apollo Jim murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is the environment in which my dad started taking his smuggling career much more seriously. When marijuana had been totally vilified, even though a Republican commission chairman reported that the most dangerous thing about marijuana was getting arrested for it. Over the next two years, dad's building up his business. Any freelancer will tell you business is based on who you know. And for the next few years, my dad got to know more peeps in Marin and San Francisco through his partner, my mom. He met people through music, bands like The Grateful Dead. He was part of a weekly poker game with Elton Kelly, Stanley Mouse, David Getz, and Big Daddy Tom Donahue, the rock and roll record producer, promoter, and rock and roll disc jockey. Anyway, Big Daddy Tom Donahue had a Mill Valley mansion with a nonstop party 24-7. And my parents would go hang out, make friends. That's how freelance business works. Being a New York City transplant amidst the pot industry of Marin County, California, was a major asset. My dad is a people person who stays in touch with all his trusted childhood friends still in New York. They loved getting high, making money, and turning people on to good pot. A thriving smuggling business from Marin to New York organically evolves. My parents and big sister moved from San Francisco to San Anselmo in Marin County. Most of the musicians and big dealers are living in Marin. And as my dad says, he melted into the scene. (laughs) Such a hippie thing to say. I love it. I being very fortunate uh, in the scene that I came right into was at the top of the top. So, yeah, I mean, I was just introduced to big-time people. And so that that was life and the direction I guess I chose. Pot was and still is part of the fabric of the culture of Northern California. It's as common and intrinsic as church is to the South, film to L.A. or corn to Iowa. So my dad was getting busier, making real money. He did a quick deal involving pink Coke. The manufacturers of the cocaine had made an error, and the entire batch was pink. It wasn't white. It was sort of pink because they had fucked up how they— processed it apparently i didn't know this then but they're 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 presenting it as rose cocaine (laughs) (laughs) you know whatever my dad sold a kilo of rose coke in one day and made four thousand dollars four thousand dollars 1972 is the equivalent to over twenty four thousand dollars today this is the only time my dad says he sold coke after this experience he vowed he'd never do it again because the coke guys were sketchy so the smuggler and I, got, he, he really loved that I got rid of it. Friend. The next thing he did was invite me down to uh, his, he was from L.A. So he says, hey, come on down, uh, we'll talk about more stuff. What I do remember is, is going down there and staying at his house and sleeping over it. And in the middle of the fucking night, he comes roaring through carrying a gun. Because he thought he heard somebody fucking coming through the door, which he didn't, and nothing happened. But that that was it for me, you know, in terms, holy shit, guns? Fuck this. And all these guys involved in this whole scene were older guys. They all scared me anyway, because they were adults. (laughs) (laughs) And these are not my, these are not people I want to be around. You're dealing with guns or, you know, fuck this. Yeah, your um, world was not guns. integrity, handshakes, friendship, music. Well, so to speak. Listen, there were plenty of pot dealers who were major fucking sleazebag assholes also. 
I mean, it, 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 there was lots of money rolling around, and consequently, you know, good people were good people, and bad people were just... But I, I very clearly, uh, you know, that was it for me. Side note, pot being a Schedule One drug feels so ridiculous and at complete odds with the collective opinion of my parents, my parents' friends, and my friends' parents, also known as the psychedelic pioneers, a.k.a. the counterculture insiders. Because all hippie elders agree that cocaine and heroin destroyed the joyful, peace-loving, world-famous San Francisco counterculture scene. So you saw the scene, the music scene, destroy, um, destroying by your ha- artistic heroes by cocaine and hard drugs. Yeah, hard drugs, mm-hmm. cocaine and hard drugs. All of them, I mean, all these people who are all these, uh, you know, I look at the whole, what I look back on now and look at what happened in San Francisco. And this whole thing exploded and then got destroyed. It exploded with uh, acid. Exploded positively and amazingly with acid. And it was completely poisoned by hard drugs. Which was despicable. We listened to to the dead behind the backstage. And the the cocaine was disgusting. And the people, you know, and it was all this shit. I grew up with very strong anti-cocaine and anti-heroin drug rules. No coke or heroin, but you can totally smoke pot or like LSD. Yes, just come to us. Mushrooms, great. Do a vision quest. Back to pot. It's 1973 and my parents are living in Mill Valley near the library. They're at a house up a steep hill with over 50 steps to the front door. A load called Lime Green Mexican comes in and Dad remembers the lime green is wonderful pot. Lots of pot that flowed in was like it literally, they called it bricks because they were. They were pressed so... Uh, it was such poor pot to begin with, and it was pressed in these presses that came in bricks. So you'd have a two-pound brick, so it, it ran the gamut of quality, and quality control was really important. And at that point in life uh, and time, 50 years ago, the, the most popular we all knew of and liked was a very light green, a lime green... Mexican sativa. It was light. It was almost gold green, and it was a very nice uphead with no physical characteristics. So that was like the the legendary lime green. My dad remembers hauling fifty pound bales of lime green Mexican up the fifty plus steps to the front door. He did at least five hundred pounds of lime green, so that's a lot of steps. I remember carrying these giant garbage bags. 50-pound bales up to the house, and then it'd be rolling out. But because of where we lived, nobody could see it anyway, and it was on a quiet, secluded street, even though it was close right downtown. So these bales would move up, they'd move down. It was it was very funny. You know, geez, I go back to that that time. I'm, I'm 26 years old or something, 27, 26, 27, you know it. Uh, gentle times and lovely pot and just living. In that same year, 1973, my dad lands his biggest trip so far. Remember, trips are deals from start to finish. It's the big Panama Red trip. This trip, my dad moves the 700 pounds of Colombian pot. So my parents named this load Panama Red, which was a kind of generic term for various kinds of pot. Panama Red was later made famous by a song written by Peter Rowan in 1973. Later on at summer camp in the 1980s, Peter Rowan showed up and he taught Panama Red to all the campers. And, of course, I took it literally. I thought it was about a cowboy. It's a pretty good song. It's pretty catchy. Now, here's how the first Panama Red trip worked. It's 1973. My mom is pregnant with me. My big sister is between four and five. And my dad gets a hold of 700 pounds of pot from a big Bay Area smuggler. They're living and working out of the rental Mill Valley house with the 50-plus steps to the front door. My dad met the Brooklyn boys through Nikki Sunshine, the East Coast acid king. And the Brooklyn boys would come over, 
pay my dad for the product, and take it to New York City in big old cars with big trunks, Chevys or Plymouths. They would buy it outright, drive it to New York City, and then come back for more. The first Panama Red trip of 700 pounds earns my parents $15,000, which is the equivalent to more than $82,000 today. So my dad is working with people who are surprisingly organized for disorganized crime and meticulous. Each box is expertly packaged and exactly 10 pounds. Just love this pot because it was beautiful. It's absolutely beautiful. And it was really upper stuff. It was just very pretty stuff, well well manicured, all manicured into little buds. And they, it smelled beautiful. It smelled like chocolate. And it was so consistent, which is a pretty unusual thing with hippies doing pot trips. <laughs> Consistency is not what they were known for in the early, early days necessarily. And so we ended up, I ended up doing 700 pounds of it. I remember these numbers because it it was that was a lot of seemed like a really pretty good amount of pot. So generally. explain <clears throat> how this happened and where you picked it up. How did you get it? I don't understand. Right. So there's fishing all over the West Coast. So fish fishing boats. I mean fishermen, different of these guys, are approached, and a main boat would come up and be thirty miles, fifty miles offshore, and then a smaller fishing boat would meet it wherever and offload onto the smaller boat you could fit 10,000 pounds on not huge boats good size but not huge boats so when it came off the boats onto the trucks it would go to a, a central warehouse generally unless it was so big it had to go to several different warehouses and then from there I would be dealing with people who had who who were at that step, who had the warehouses, and then moved it to to me to, or or others like that. To celebrate the completion of the first Panama Red trip, my parents embark on a vacation to Hawaii and leave five-year-old Vertica at Grandma's house. Giddy on financial success, they splurge on a helicopter ride from Mill Valley to the San Francisco airport. It's about a 40-minute drive from Mill Valley to the airport without traffic. Who takes a helicopter for that short a journey? Well, that's exactly what the helicopter meet and greeters thought. Anyone taking a helicopter has to have a lot of money. And my 27-year-old dad doesn't look like an old-moneyed Californian with his giant Jufro and artsy hand-embroidered cowboy shirt and leather fringe jacket. Oh, he was clearly part of the bohemian hippie counterculture. Okay, so my dad is psyched for Hawaii, and he decides to bring some party favors with him on this trip. Uh, I thought, okay, well, I'll bring a little bit with me, and I brought, oh, I don't know, a couple of grams of pot and a couple of capsules of mescaline and... uh, um, maybe a tiny amount of hash. And I, I actually, I wrapped it all up and I hid it in a, um, a nutcracker doll. Who brings a nutcracker doll to Hawaii? I mean, absurd, right? While there are a lot of macadamia nuts in Hawaii, a holiday nutcracker is never on anyone's tropical vacation packing list. So my parents get off the helicopter, walk into the terminal and encounter some bad luck. We land uh, at the airport uh, and walk into the terminal, and there's there's this place there where they they're absolutely going through your luggage like you just got back from um, uh, from the Golden Triangle or something like that. I mean, they're they're inspecting it like you're going through customs from who knows where. And they're going through my luggage and they find this thing the and they open cracker. it. And they and, and they open it. And what's this? I say, I don't know. You know, what are you supposed to say? It's drugs? They say, oh. okay, young man, well, come with us. So Taffy is, is wa- watching while I'm getting busted. They haul my dad off in handcuffs as my mom watches from the other side of security. My mom pops into action and calls her rock star pot lawyer and the bail bondsman. Okay, so after successfully smuggling almost a ton of pot across the country, my dad gets busted on his home turf for a couple grams of pot and a few hits of mescaline, which is a nature-forward psychedelic drive from peyote. I just finished selling a, a 700 pounds, and 
Uh, I get busted for two grams. That is dodging a bullet, my friend. Uh, I ended up having to... I pled guilty to some misdemeanor pot, but they started out by wanting a felony for the psychedelics, for the one capsule of mescaline or something like that. And eventually a deal was cut to where I would get four weekends in the Redwood City Jail. My dad gets sentenced to four weekends in jail, which I didn't know was a thing. But yes, it is. Jail on the weekends. It's like a month-long weekend workshop, but you go to jail instead of the ceramic studio, printmaking shop, or writing retreat. When I served the sentence, I would... Uh, Taffy would drive me down, and I'd check into the jail. I would take, I can't remember if I would get so stoned or some sleeping pills or something. The place was like a zoo. They put me in this tank with all these mother rapers and father rapers and, you know, (laughs) and here I am there, and I didn't even talk to these people. Uh, and, And I guess there were bunks in the place, but the place was so crawling with people it left the lights on all the time, and I didn't have a bunk. I ended up sleeping on the dining table. And and the fucking guards, they were really assholes. They would, I was supposed to get out at six o'clock on Sunday evening, and they would fuck around. And they just sort of played games, and I got out whenever it was, maybe an hour later, half an hour later, and Taffy would would be waiting down in the middle of Redwood City at the jail, whatever. You'd go get Chinese food in the city on the way home? Probably. This is a very happy-go-lucky story the way my dad tells it. And in the next 20 years, my dad's smuggling career grows along with increasingly serious prison sentences for pot. Pot sentencing laws and my dad are like contrary fraternal twins, both growing in the pot industry in totally opposite ways. The more successful my dad grows as a pot smuggler, the more serious the pot laws grow. You're listening to Disorganized Crime. I'm Rainbow Valentine. We'll be right back. Hey guys, this is Paris Hilton. Trapped in Treatment is back, and this season we're taking on Wasp. They held us in dog cages. They starved us. They beat us. They burned us and subject us to really horrible, uh, cruel and unusual punishment. After my personal experience at Provo Canyon School, I was shocked to learn that a man named Robert Litchfield, a man who got his start at the school that I went to, would go on to create a multi-million dollar empire. He was trying to brand us, so we were going to become the McDonald's in treatment. The Worldwide Association of Specialty Programs and Schools. They prey on, you know, a parent's really natural and beautiful love for their children in a really, really, unfortunately, effective way. At this time in my life now, if someone presented this program to me, and not just because I've already experienced it, sham, scam, beware. Listen to season two of Trapped in Treatment on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, 
the Apollo Jim murders, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpert. It's just a shame, you know, that they took him from us. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, knocking on doors, uncovering new evidence, including the DNA of a potential killer. Uh, my name is Danny Smith. I'm a detective uh, with Miramar Police Department. This is Scott Weinberger. We're actually reopening an old case, and your name came up. Untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one murder, but almost a dozen. I thought they were going to kill me, so I kept my mouth shut, and I didn't say anything. All these years, I didn't say anything. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Despite these arrests and the ever-looming war on drugs, my dad made the choice to remain a smuggler. It came with enormous risks, but it was lucrative, flexible, and fun. Now, the main reason my dad gives for working as a pot smuggler is freedom. And the prevailing philosophy in our household of freelancers is that money is freedom. My dad and his smuggling associates were driven by an even bigger force in their line of work. Money is enticing, but the children of the 1960s counterculture felt betrayed by the U.S. government, a feeling kindled by the ongoing Vietnam War and fed by what they saw as the government's hypocrisy and antagonism. So my mom told me this hilarious story, getting an insider's perspective into the FBI in the 60s. One time I picked up an FBI agent in Chinatown in a bar, if you could believe this. <laughs> this is a story I haven't heard. Yeah, it's like one of the times I was living alone, and so I picked him up and took him home, right? He had a trench coat. What was under the trench coat, though? That was the real question. Just close. He had clothes on, but I got it. This was like 1966, and during that time, and he told, you know, we... we um, had a tryst, and then he told me that he worked for this um, this government, and that you know there were rooms and rooms of people listening with like microphones to everything going on, and there was a surveillance going on. So that cinched it for me because this guy was a real guy. It wasn't like the village voice telling you that shit was happening. It was this real guy telling me that, like, shit was happening. That was the only time I picked up a guy in a bar, though, I want to tell you. My parents also saw many of their peers sent to Vietnam, a war they both felt was pointless, classist, and maliciously dishonest. Dennis McNally, our 1960s counterculture historian from last episode, said this really potent thing about anger and the bitterness of the 1960s youth in the counterculture. What happened in the 1960s was that four, there are four or five things that whether you're conscious of it or not, as an American, you're taught to believe in. One of them, for instance, is um, that America is uniquely great and wonderful and can do no wrong, and if it's American, it's good. So the Vietnam War comes in on all this because, remember, in the 1960s, uh, when I was getting ready to go to college and going to college and facing the draft, I was the son of uh, a military veteran, as were most people of my age, because most Americans who were of service age in the 1940s served in World War II, and um, defeated uh, a really horrible foe, uh, and we're very proud of that, as well they should be. And the the fact is that the assumption was that if America was going to go to war, that it was necessary. And that's what got Lyndon Johnson in deep, deep trouble. My fellow Americans, not long ago I received a letter from a woman in the Midwest. She wrote, Dear Mr. President, In my humble way, I am writing to you about the crisis in Vietnam. I have a son who is now in Vietnam. My husband served in World War II. Our country was at war. But now, this time, it's just something that I don't understand. This is President Lyndon B. Johnson's news conference from 1965, where he's defending the Vietnam War. Why must young Americans 
born into a land exultant with hope and with golden promise, toil and suffer and sometimes die in such a remote and distant place? The answer, like the war itself, is not an easy one. We have learned at a terrible and a brutal cost that retreat does not bring safety, and weakness does not bring peace. Lyndon Johnson decided that, that he couldn't lose a war, um, and that, that the idea that America could lose, and so he kept pouring more and more resources into Vietnam, and it became more and more obvious that he was wrong, and that, that A, we weren't going to win the war, B, we had no business being in the war, and so forth and so on. So if you're a teenager in the 1960s and you suddenly discover that, gee, the government's been lying to us, and then you um, are forced, you're forced to start challenging all kinds of assumptions. One of them is that all drugs are bad, right? That was one of the messages from America. And, you know, people tried pot and they went, gee, this makes me eat a lot of ice cream. But other than that, you know, I, where, where, I don't quite see the damage here. And that, that, uh, that left us with um, an enormous gap in belief, in challenging the, the, you know, the, tra- the traditional American beliefs. My parents grew up in Harry Anslinger's America. Remember, he was the guy who spread the anti-marijuana propaganda after Prohibition. But their personal drug experiences were the opposite of what the government asserted was the truth about marijuana. I could say, oh, drugs changed my life. They did. But absolutely positively, it opened my eyes to seeing that there was more to the real world, to the real world, not to some hallucinatory other world, more to the real world than just the experience of being where you are right at that moment. It brought out a Zen quality of going inside and not outside and letting your boundaries disappear. I think it opened up life into art. Thought it was soothing in a sea of chaos because it was very, just life is chaos. Life is very fearful. During a 1994 interview, President Nixon's domestic policy chief John Ehrlichman, suggested the War on Drugs campaign had ulterior motives. Keep in mind, Ehrlichman did have a complicated relationship with Nixon. Nixon was immediately pardoned for Watergate, and Ehrlichman ended up in prison for a year and a half. However, in the interview published in Harper's Magazine, Ehrlichman explained that the Nixon campaign had two enemies. Ehrlichman is quoted as saying, The anti-war left and black people. We knew we couldn't make it illegal to be either against the war or black, but by getting the public to associate the hippies with marijuana and blacks with heroin, and then criminalizing both heavily, we could disrupt those communities. We could arrest their leaders, raid their homes, break up their meetings, and vilify them night after night on the evening news. Did we know we were lying about the drugs? Of course we did. Now, my dad and most of his smuggling colleagues felt, and still feel, their work was honorable. They felt deceived by the government. To them, the government was the bad guy. So if they're subverting the bad guy, what harm are they actually doing? I think the government's success and rightful righteousness in World War II led to hubris. And hubris leads to a desire for more power, and power corrupts. So corruption leads to a pushback at some point, because energy isn't stagnant. It ebbs and flows, pulses and moves like a fractal laser hippie light show. There is cause and effect in a never-ending game of ping pong. So let's find out how the energy moved in my dad's industry. So now it's the early 70s. My dad has a life partner, a little kid, his partner's pregnant, and he's in his late 20s. He's been doing small to medium deals with anywhere from 50 to a couple thousand pounds a pot, 
storing merchandise in the house, and working with whoever comes along. People who might be sloppy, careless, stoned, or all three. He's been a kid and treating the business like a breezy lemonade stand, childishly. But in 1974, on the dark and stormy night when my parents lost all their money but gained a child, me, my dad knew he had to change careers or change his business model. I lost my completely lost my self-esteem. Taffy and I split up. I, I thought I was so worthless and I failed and I failed my family, you know. Coming up in episode four, my dad loses everything and is forced to rebuild. I'm Rainbow Valentine, and you're listening to Disorganized Crime. Disorganized Crime, Smuggler's Daughter, is written and recorded by me, Rainbow Valentine. Our producers are Gabby Watts and Taylor Church. Executive producers are Brandon Barr, Brian Lavin, Elsie Crowley, and me at School of Humans, and Connell Byrne and Charles Bryant at iHeartRadio. Our music is by Gabby Lala and Claire Campbell, with original theme by Mark Karen and me. Special thanks to Peter Rowan for the use of his song, Panama Red. You can follow us online at disorganizedcrimepodcast.com. Writing our own story, doing as we please. Tamil pies, sleeping princess of the redwood trees. She helps us keep it real, a handshake seals the deal. Wrap the stash, seal the meal, and load up these old wheels. Rolling a doobie, young, rich, and groovy. Making it up as we roll along. Rolling along, far out country road. Rolling along, far out country road. Hey guys, this is Paris Hilton. Trapped in Treatment is back, and this season we're taking on WASP, the worldwide association of specialty programs and schools. They held us in dog cages. They starved us. They beat us. It was trying to brand us. We were going to become the McDonald's of kid treatment. Join my hosts as they unravel the story of the largest and most shocking organization in the history of the troubled teen industry. Listen to season two of Trapped in Treatment on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is your space to explore mental health, personal development, and all the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there.